Welcome to one. Oh, sorry. The, what? <laughs> sorry, I, it, it was silent, and then I was like, I have to say my name. I have to say my name. <laughs> <laughs> the episode just starts with, I'm Wanda. <laughs> Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode two, One Does Not Simply Borrow from Bilbo. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkien verse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. All right, welcome back. Uh, this episode, we're discussing the first two chapters of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, Bilbo Baggins throws his eleventy-first birthday party. Bilbo Chella, uh, and then in the middle of the party, he gives a speech to all of his closest relations, and he disappears. And his cousin Frodo. Uh, comes into an inheritance of Bag End, the house that Bilbo lived in, as well as the One Ring. Uh, and then in Chapter 2, he learns about the history of the ring and the fact that he's going to have to go on a quest to destroy it. Um, we're just realizing now, <laughs> as we do the first episode, uh, that it's possible we may switch to one chapter per episode because we came up with a lot of material to talk about from these two chapters. There's a lot of world building that goes on. You get a lot of context on, um, on where they are and what kind of a society that the hobbits live in. This a hundred percent confirmed my idea from before that the prologue is not necessary at all. This, in my opinion, was a way better and more engaging introduction to the world of hobbits. Um, it's so full of whimsy. <laughs> in a way, Tolkien really doubles down in this chapter on hobbits being like salt of the earth people. <laughs> yeah, emphasis on salt for some of them, because dang Bilbo, those gifts. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, that's quite a transition to Shawnee. Um, but yeah, Bilbo deals out in this chapter some very sassy gifts. Um, when he's giving away his stuff as he prepares to leave Bag End, he leaves like little notes on some of them. Um, for people where it says things like for Adelard Tuke for his very own an umbrella because Adelard Tuke uh, would always walk off with Bilbo's umbrellas or like he gives one guy a book um, because the guy would borrow Bilbo's books and never return them. Yeah, what's so great about these gifts though also is there's a little dis like a one line description in which it just reinforces that like yeah the notes are salty and the gifts are a little you know backhanded but they're also like intended to be useful to that person. Um, and I love that because it's like, yeah, Bilbo is like kind of showing his true feelings here, but he's also not trying to be just like mean. He's like, hey, you've shown that you could need this thing over time, so I'm just going to give it to you now and please stop taking mine. It's also prefaced by something that I think underscores Bilbo's sincerity, which is as he's packing to go, he bows to his house when he leaves, which I just thought was really soft and also really gets at that the thing that I think makes Marie Kondo so popular, which is this idea of 
we are sentimental about people in our lives, but we're also really sentimental about possessions and places. And so in giving these gifts, Bilbo is giving away things that he's used and things that he has, and he's doing it thoughtfully because these things are important and these people are important even when they annoy him. Yeah, and and that intentionality of of giving some of giving things away really kind of leads into one of the main ideas of this chapter which is that moment when Bilbo has to give up the ring. And we see this like tension between him and Gandalf when he like he just doesn't want to leave it behind. He doesn't really understand why, but also eventually he does have the strength to to do it. And I thought this was just a really well done scene because it maintains Bilbo's character so well throughout the whole thing while really showcasing this kind of like unease that is growing about this object. I thought it was fascinating later on. He was talking to Frodo um, and he's talking about how hard it was for Bilbo to give up the ring. And he says, Bilbo did not, he didn't have the benefit of understanding what this thing actually was. He didn't know what I'm telling you right now, which is that the ring takes hold of people and it works its magic on you so that you don't want to let it go. He had no idea. And uh, so at the point where Gandalf's trying to get him to give the ring up and leave it to Frodo rather than take it with him on his journey, he thinks it's his fault. He doesn't he he never once thinks, oh, this ring might be the problem. He thinks I'm the problem. For some reason, I like this thing. Yeah, um, it was so, so was funny, the... like, he mentions to, Gandalf mentions that Bilbo thought he was just not aging because of, like, good genes. He was like, yeah. Can you imagine making it to, like, <laughs> 80 years old or whatever the human equivalent would be and looking like you're 40 years old and just being like, yeah, it's genetics. I love that the other hobbits just, uh, they, they just, they skirt around the issue. They just refer to Bilbo as well-preserved. <laughs> when he's like he's like walking around looking like uh like carol channing also is well preserved not just the best like weirdly backhanded compliment about like an older person where it's not like oh you look really young it's like oh you've just preserved yourself really well is there a hobbit equivalent of botox because i feel like they're implying something about the hobbit equivalent of botox <laughs> in it is sort of a tinge of uh of this uh, this respectfulness that we accord to rich people, because Bilbo is like conspicuously rich, right? He he's described as sort of a a Bilbo Gates kind of figure. I'm sorry, <laughs> but he keeps a lot of his money away. Um, and and in the first few pages, there's there's like this scene where different hobbits are at the Green Dragon and they're arguing about whether Bilbo is is basically a good or a bad guy. Um, and the one thing that they can agree upon is that. He really does give a lot of his money away. He seems like a he. He sort of strikes you as the kind of person who is is very very good, but also does not relate to other to other people or other hobbits um, the same way that that you know a typical hobbit might, um, like a benevolent recluse. Yeah, and he seems to like instill the same characteristics in Frodo too, where you know. Frodo just comes to live with him fairly, you know, later on in his in his life. It, it, like, he's at least, I think it's in Hobbit terms, his tweens, which is anywhere from childhood to 33. Uh, they, like, Frodo has had a life before Bilbo, but somehow as he comes to live with him, he becomes this 
the same kind of person who's a little bit like he's a very nice guy. He uh, is very effusive, very generous, but there's something about him where I, th- I think at some point he actually just Frodo straight up calls the other like some of the other hobbits like straight up stupid um, where he he doesn't quite feel like he belongs in this place. Yeah. You know what I found really interesting was that Bilbo and Frodo, I remembered being unusual, that they they stand out or they don't quite fit in. But what I didn't remember from this chapter was that it's also true of Sam to a certain extent, that Sam doesn't quite fit in. I think Sam maybe hides it better or has to hide it better because he doesn't have wealth as an excuse for being slightly eccentric. But in that same sort of the conversation at the Green Dragon, when Sam is talking about magic and elves, and it's clear that he believes in the wonder still outside of the Shire. And the other hobbits are like, yeah, whatever. If I wanted to listen to fairy stories, like I could tell them at home to my kids. But Sam believes, and Sam still dreams of going to see the elves, and that's part of why Sam ends up on the journey, is because Sam has that same sense of not quite being content with life inside the bounds of the Shire. Now that we're talking about Sam, we have to bring up one of, I think, all of our favorite realizations from this chapter, which is that (laughs) Sam's father is literally named Ham Gamgee. Ham Gamgee! (laughs) Sam, son of Ham Gamgee. (laughs) I think you mean Sam, son of Ham of the house of Gamgee. It's so good. I think his name is actually like Hamfast, but Ham Gamgee is so good. This isn't uncommon in Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, we have Gimli, son of Gloin. That doesn't rhyme, though. No, but if you look at we, the We do have Aragorn, names, son of Arathorn. That one is... Right. Yeah. And Gloin and Oin <laughs> and... Balin you know. and Dwalin and... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay, fine. I, for some reason, this one feels like it wasn't necessarily intentional, though, and, like, Tolkien didn't realize that Hamfast and Samwise, when shortened, would become Sam and Ham. <laughs> I had the exact opposite impression. I feel like there's so many layers of humor uh, in this book already. Uh, like there's like really obvious jokes, like the uh, like the 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 Hobbit from the Proudfoot family who says "proud feet" is like a real thing in the book. <laughs> I... um, but I think that Ham Gamgee is also a joke. If it I is, so. it's a good one. Although. Before we leave Sam, I will say, as sweet and sincere as he is, I did find a little bit the bumbling peasant comic relief thing to be uh, in the very end of chapter two. It just went a little too hard. And I don't know if you guys had that impression where it was like a little too, oh, Master Frodo, you mean I get to see the elves? Like... I also think that's just an example. Like, Sam is more like what all the hobbits are like, and Frodo and Bilbo are just kind of different and aloof, and I see it more as, like, 
Frodo and Bilbo are like the ivory tower intellectuals and everyone else is is kind of on Sam's level. Yeah, although, I mean, it felt very Regency novel. Ah, uh, here are these, like, educated, essentially gentry. And here are the peasants who don't know any better. Although you're right that, like, Frodo, too, doesn't really know what he's getting into. What I thought was really interesting was um, the description of Smeagol. Um, so in, in Chapter 2, uh, Gandalf, who has tracked down Gollum and figured out, basically, how the ring came to be, um, from in in Sauron's possession a long time ago to being picked up by Gollum, um, he tells the story and he tells it all the way back to uh, when Gollum, formerly known as Smeagol, um, was a was a young man, um, and he describes Smeagol in this way that I thought was really really interesting. Um, he is described as just like Frodo and Bilbo, as different from his family. Um, they call him inquisitive and curious minded. And they say, and he says, he was interested in roots and beginnings. He dived into deep pools and his head and eyes were downward. So he's just like Bilbo and he's just like Frodo in this way, that he's especially curious. And it's almost like, it's almost like there's this predisposition of particularly curious um, people to attract the ring um, and also to be taken in by it. I have a question for the two of you, which is, how did you two read that description, or what did you see in Gollum when you read that initial description of him? Did it seem to you like he was being set up as Smeagol to be read a certain way? It made me very sad to have a to have a person... Um who's described as more or less normal with this one exception, which is that uh, he's very inquisitive and he's really curious about the world around him. Again, like interested in roots and beginnings, which makes me think of someone who's like an abstract thinker, which I really relate to. So the idea that that would like when like attracted to the ring turn into, you know, like lead him immediately to start um, doing evil things was it, it, it really, it was, it was really sad to me. How about I you, almost, Navia? I almost had like the opposite reaction where I, I definitely feel sorry for Smeagol slash Gollum. Um, and I, I thought the description of his like descent into this creature was really tragic. But the thing that struck me was that like this initial murder that he commits when he first sees the ring and then like essentially immediately decides to kill Deagle to get it when he doesn't turn it over immediately. For me, that says something about like who his, who he is as a character underneath the effects of the ring, because over the series, like we're going to see Frodo and, and Bilbo and Sam interact with the ring in pretty close quarters, but we see a lot of other people be near it. Right. Um, and we see even Boromir, like, really be affected by it and really want it. But nobody goes so far as to just, like, straight up murder someone to get the ring immediately upon seeing it for the first time. And that kind of struck me as, like, why did he have this exceptionally violent reaction immediately? That's really why I was, why I was asking the question, 
was because I felt that there was some contradiction that I couldn't quite resolve in Gollum. That he's set up as curious and inquisitive and interested in things and wanting to know more, but none of that really indicates the sort of person who is going to immediately turn to murder. And later on, Gandalf is talking about how there's still some chance that Gollum might be redeemed and he's got enough willpower to at least maintain some shred of who he is after years of exposure, which says that he shouldn't be so immediately swayed. But then it's like, where does the murder come from? Because he didn't, there was no indicator beforehand, before he came into contact with the ring, that he was the sort of person who was particularly violent or who was really aggressive or who felt like he should be entitled to have everything he wanted. So I kind of struggle with how do we make sense of Gollum as he's shown to us here? And how do we make sense of Gollum's story? Because I feel bad for him, certainly, but I'm also sitting there going, so did he murder this guy? just because that's his problem-solving strategy? Because then I feel less bad for him. I kind of have it. But if he's so susceptible to the ring that just being in its presence made him turn to murder, how is he strong-willed enough that he has a hope of redemption? Shouldn't he have been totally erased by the ring? As you were talking about this, I kind of started half-baking an alternate theory here, which is, rather than thinking of how the characters are vulnerable to the ring. One of the interesting things that we see is the idea of the ring like actually taking action on its own, right? As a as a character mm-hmm. itself, especially in Gandalf suggests that when when Bilbo found the ring, it was because the ring was actually trying to get away from this cave and trying to get away from Gollum. I wonder if it's possible that like in this moment where the ring is found by Deagle the ring itself sees Smeagol yeah. as a weak character and wants to go to him. Yes, as as if there's like it's not it's not necessarily um, entirely up to Smeagol what he does. It's it's actually the ring's choice in a way. Yeah, I think that's so. I think that's so smart. I think I I'm inclined I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's about how the yeah. I, sorry, I was just going to say, I don't know if it's as straightforward as, like, it was one or the other, or if it's some combination of the two, but it, it is, like, something that I constantly forget when I'm watching and reading this series, is that, like, the ring has a will of its own. Even though they say it all the time, you just don't think of objects that way. Yeah, let's talk some more about the ring, because you do get a little bit more rounded view of the ring and how it affects people in these chapters than you do in the movies. One of the interesting things was, like, I never really understood why the power of invisibility was tied to this ring. I was just like, that's a really random, just extra superpower to throw onto this ring. Um, but Gandalf's description <laughs> Gandalf's description essentially says that, like, the invisibility, like, the longer you do it, you kind of, you fade away. And, and in your transition into Ring Wraith, right, you're, like, each time you become invisible, you're, it's almost like your soul becomes a little less visible um, and I, I never realized that, like, it wasn't just like, oh, like, invisibility on. Um, it's more just like you are losing a part of yourself each time, and it's not necessarily a power. 
Yeah, when you wear the ring, you actually become more present on the plane where Sauron and Sauron's minions all live. You're like becoming invisible in the real world, but you're more visible in in like Sauron's Sauron's Thunderdome or whatever. Like there's something exploratory about putting the ring on. Um, so it makes sense that curious people are drawn to it. I thought it was fascinating that Gollum took the ring and ultimately what he did with it was uh, that he began to he began to try and learn about the world. And in particular, he went into the Misty Mountains because he felt like there were secrets there. He was really interested. He was just, he's just a, a person who's really interested in things. Yeah, and but he also just hates the sun, right? <laughs> like, <it's> definitely, <laughs> just, There's definitely a little two bit reasons, of ulterior right? motive there. <laughs> All right, so one of two major reasons that Gollum goes into the Misty Mountains. <laughs> uh, he, he hates the sun. Um, and, and he, and he also, and he also wants to, to, uh, kind of search out old history and, and, and the secrets of the world. And then they say that he realizes after many, many years, um, in the caves, it says all the great secrets under the mountains had turned out to be just empty night. There was nothing more to find out, nothing worth doing. Um, which was well, really, that's, that's I, really I, sad. I, it was really, really sad. And it, and it made me think, um, of the the temptation of the ring sort of like a sort of like a psychological death instinct where it it plays on it plays on some part of your ego that that wants to um wants to be sort of perpetually excited and actually feel nothing um whatever it is uh whatever it is that that you're kind of naturally inclined to to be curious about or want to lend yourself towards egotistically is the thing that you can do even more of, you know, when the ring comes to you. I cannot believe you just said psychological death instinct. Are those, are those real terms? Am I just, am I just like spouting nonsense right now? So they're real terms, but they're real terms from like the old school psychoanalysis, like not scientifically validated at all, mostly kind of bullshit, like Jungian theory. It's from Jung? Yeah. I'm pretty sure the death instinct is either Freud either Freud or Jung. Um, And I want to say... God, you're making me feel Ah, so stupid. Freud! (laughs) It was Freud, which is even worse. It is worse. All right. I'm not... (laughs) I'm 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 not proud of uh, I'm not I'm not proud of referencing Granddaddy Freud on this podcast. Uh, I don't subscribe <laughs> to Freud's theories, um, except for this one, I guess. Um, that said, I uh, I think I think that we'll have to uh, we'll have to have the discussion of uh, well, I think uh, this idea of uh, sci- scientifically validated psychology is pretty questionable, but um, but we can have that uh, <laughs> oh. discussion. Oh boy, on, that on, is uh, a <laughs> way beyond lord of the rings yeah no no shani and i will take that take that outside in our other podcasts <laughs> um, as, as the business people would say uh, i'm gonna need you guys to take that offline yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh for listeners listeners should know that navia comes from the world of business and will be dropping oh a yes lot of business jargon on this podcast i'm a very important business person i thought this whole paragraph where the 
power of the Great Rings is described is really well done for two reasons. One, because it just sounds so ominous. The way he talks about you go on and it's not, oh, you have immortality. It's you just have to keep going even after you lose all energy and will to live. You just continue, which is such a grim way, such a dark way of thinking about it. But the other thing I really liked about this paragraph is right at the end of the paragraph, there's some little mention of you could hear the sound of Sam's garden shears snipping away outside. And that just felt really powerful because I think we often imagine that in fantasy worlds and even in our own, bad things happen in appropriately dramatic settings. The movie definitely leans into this, right? Like, the light goes all grim and ominous and the fire is crackling in the background and the shadows loom. And But that's not really how we get bad news or how we learn about horrible things. A lot of the time it's just, hey, you're going about your daily life and guess what? Something awful is out there in the world that you've just found out about. Yeah, that actually leads into one of my absolute favorite quotes from this chapter in which um, Frodo basically says like, oh, I wish all of this terrible stuff wasn't happening in a time that I'm alive in. He says, I think I wish this hadn't happened in my time. And Gandalf replies, uh, let me find the exact quote so I don't butcher this. Something along the lines of, so do all who live in such times, but that is not their decision. All we can do is decide what to do with the time given to us. You guys, this hit deep right now. <laughs> like, we're living well, through I'm a pandemic. We're living through, like, all of these horrible things that are happening. And, and I think that this quote was really just, like, doubling down on I feel like it was just doubling down on this idea that of of the reluctant hero, right? Like Frodo is not a hero because he is made to be one. He's a hero because like everyone just is in the right circumstances. Something interesting about that though is I have seen that quote everywhere over the last couple of months. I have seen that quote resonate with so many people. Always, but especially in the last couple of months, all over the internet, people are sharing that and retweeting it or reblogging it, whatever it is. And I think it's because not just does it speak to this idea of a reluctant hero, but it speaks to the fact that when we are in dark times, it often isn't about heroism. It isn't really even about being the one person who's going to step up and save the universe. It's, hey, the world sucks right now, and it's all well and good to sit there and go, I wish things were different, but you can't wish that things were different and have them be different. All you can do is decide, hey, this is what I can do right now, today to get to where I want to be and do those things. Yeah, one and for of Frodo, that's like a big thing, right? It's take the ring to Mount Doom and throw it into this fire. But for everybody else, maybe it's what are you doing today to get the world 
one step away from that precipice that it feels like it's standing on. Yeah. I think it's really funny that um, that you've got people sharing that quote right now, um, like about their like decision to put on a mask when they go to the grocery store, <laughs> in reference to this uh, to a, to a conversation that Gandalf and Frodo have about Frodo literally taking on the Ring of Power and and uh, and carrying it to Mount Doom. It seems like a little bit seems like a little bit out of proportion. I would disagree. Um, and the reason why I would disagree is because if you read the whole quote, Gandalf doesn't just stop and say, well, yes, so do I, and so do all who live in such times. But he goes on to say all we can do is decide how to use the time that we have, right? And that part of it, to me, is the part that is powerful right now that I think a lot of people are feeling really helpless and a lot of people feel like they can't do anything big. They can't go and save the world. They can't make some big sweeping change that's going to find a vaccine or that's going to make sure that everybody has access to free and fair elections, whatever it is. Like they can't go back and revive the hundreds of thousands of people who are already dead. All they can do is say, what do I have control over right now? And how do I make the world better in the ways that I can? And I think you have to hang on to those things. Like the thing I will point out is that, especially if you live in a red state right now, there is a huge problem of feeling like you don't have any control and feeling like the people who are nominally in charge and who are supposed to be making these decisions are, if not being grossly negligent, then willfully malicious, right? Like, it's... Right, because you live in a red state, I right? I do live in a red state. And so I don't want to dismiss the people who are saying this resonates with me. And I don't want to dismiss the people who... So for context, the red state that I live in has several large reservations on it, including the one that's been, or at least partially including the one that's been hit hardest by COVID. And I'm thinking about people I know who have lost like three grandparents in the span of a couple of weeks, right? And to say, well, how to minimize what they are going through and to say like, oh, well, you shouldn't compare sort of your day-to-day -day decisions to taking the ring to mount. Like, eh, I don't know. I have kind of a strong negative reaction to that because I think that's saying like, well, this isn't that big of a deal. And maybe for some people it isn't. But I think if you're in a position where you feel like I am incredibly powerless and I am incredibly scared, and I've maybe already lost people that that does resonate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it resonating. Absolutely. No, I, I, uh, I agree with that. I think I just want to stick up for how hard that advice can be to take, you know, it's it, it, partially because it's a tautology, right? If you, if you were to say to someone that, that you trusted, you know, uh, I don't know what I can do right now. And they said, well, 
all you can do is all you can do. As Frodo is sort of staring into the void and going, you know, asking as all of us kind of do, why on earth is this happening right now? Does this mean like, does this mean that everything, does all of this suffering and all of this misfortune mean that everything is meaningless? Um, someone saying, well, you've got to do something is, I think that times that that, that's, uh, that's, that's really hard. That's, that's a really hard piece of guidance to take. And it's sort of, I've, I've oscillated over the last several weeks between feeling like, all right, get up. You've got to do something. You've got to make some kind of choice. In fact, you can't really avoid making choices and, and thinking, well, if I have to make a choice, if I have to make choices, um, then do my choices have meaning? Right. And that's like a, um, I haven't, I still haven't really settled on something. And I think it's, I, I just think that that's, um, I personally maybe didn't, didn't find that passage to be as, um, as resonant to me in part because it didn't speak to my particular sense of despair right now. I think it's also difficult to understand like what, (laughs) what Gandalf is saying is really like, you know, do something, but people have different ideas of what the scale of the something they do needs to be. And so in a way, like I feel like Frodo really could have flipped the script here if he wanted to and been like, Gandalf, like, you freaking do something, you know? <laughs> like, why aren't you taking the ring if this is just, oh, somebody's got to do it. Like, you got to do the things you got to do. Like, you're the one who knows everything and you're powerful here. Like, why wouldn't you just do this? Or even, you know, later on when we're going to see um, Aragorn and how he's essentially spent, like, decades hiding from his, his like, identity as as the true king and and not wanting to take that role where it's like, there's a lot of characters in this book that come off as heroes, but they don't necessarily want to take the, the action that is ahead of them. And they kind of just reluctantly fall into it. I love that you said that because Frodo does ask Gandalf to take the ring and, and Gandalf says the way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness and for the desire of strength to do good. And so Gandalf is basically saying that guidance that I just gave you, uh, that in times of, of darkness, you have to decide to do something. Um, the cousin of that, of that wisdom, which is the question of, all right, if I have to do something, what do I do is also the source, uh, of, of Gandalf's particular vulnerability to the ring. There's a lot of different characters in this, in this series who basically say, you know, everything is on the line the easiest choice is just to take the ring. It's important to me, I think, that we leave this question open of, is it is it reflexively true for us that their decision to take the ring to Mordor and destroy it is necessarily the best one? Like for Frodo, it actually seems like something that he does because, um, and I can relate to this, in the absence of any other real um, internal compass, he trusts Gandalf, who is the person that he's maybe closest to in the world. And Gandalf says, it's got to be destroyed. When you say, is it the best thing, do you mean, like, for each of these characters, is it? 
Or do you mean for the fate of the world, is it the best thing? For the fate of the world. Okay, well... Right? Like, um, like Ga- Gandalf is basically saying, don't offer me the ring, because I would take it. And the reason that I would take it is because I want to save the world with it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think like- Gandalf is also implying that he would then either misuse it or eventually become corrupted and then misuse it or become corrupted and then fall under the power of Sauron and then misuse it. But like, that's he's essentially not saying- an, yeah, that's an assumption on his part, though, right? Like maybe he would have actually saved the world way faster than it took Frodo to walk to Mordor by just using the ring for good. Right. And I think that without that question being open, right, without like, without, without acknowledging that that's a possibility for me, there is, there's like almost, it's like, that's like where the story all comes from is, is this question of, um, are they doing the right thing? Although I think it comes back to, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I was going to say, I think it comes back to Gandalf's advice though. Right. It's like, Gandalf is not saying, oh, you have to do something, and that something, even though I'm not telling you what it is, is, like, this specific thing. Although Gandalf does say, like, the ring needs to be destroyed. But, right, like, this idea of you have to, you have to act, right? To me, Gandalf is not saying, do a thing. He is saying, figure out what is in your capacity to do, and then do that. Right. And I think we have to sort of say, okay, well, but if Gandalf is coming at this and saying it is not in his capacity to feel like he does not feel like he can be a bearer of the ring for any reason, then we have to honor that in the same way that we honor Frodo saying, well, I guess I will take it. But he really doesn't, right? In this chapter, Frodo is basically saying, like, I'll hang on to it for now. But, like, 100% somebody else is going to deal with the actual taking this to Mordor and destroying this part. It's only much later on that he decides that, or even is just, like, kind of annoyed into accepting this this burden. I think that's kind of the, the point, right? Where it's, like, Gandalf is making an assumption, that his power is too much and he would be too tempted by the ring. But maybe what really sets Frodo and Bilbo apart from all of these other uh all of these other characters is like they don't really understand the power of the ring and so they're just like I guess fine, like I don't know, I'll take it. And maybe if they actually understood what this was for and what they could do with it, they would have been corrupted by it. Okay, I do want to stop there because we have to go soon. And I know that you both wanted to talk about the uh, the writing in the first section of these chapters, which is about the Shire. My thing that I noticed in this section was, regardless of your opinion on whether or not you enjoy the prologue or whether or not you think it serves a purpose, it's not really a great test of whether or not somebody can tell a good story, or rather tell a story well. And I just found as soon as I got into this first chapter, I really went, oh, I'm enjoying myself and I'm enjoying this and I want to read more and it's fun and charming and in a way that I don't think, even looking back, I didn't have that memory of really enjoying fellowship the way I enjoyed reading The Hobbit as a kid. And it's kind of, 
I was kind of surprised that I was enjoying it so much and that I did find it as quick and engaging as I did. Yeah, and speaking of those, like, descriptions that he gives, it is genuinely striking how similar some of the descriptions were to what happens in that scene in the movies. I mean, his di- his description of, like, Gandalf's fireworks, especially the dragon one, um, was so spot on to exactly what they do in the movies, down to everybody ducking down as soon as the dragon, like, flies over them and everything. I, I was amazed at both the beauty of those descriptions and of Peter Jackson's ability to translate them into the screen in that dedicated of a way. Absolutely. And Wanda, you pointed out in your sort of pre-show notes when you were reading the differences between Gandalf's introduction scene in the books versus in the movies, but I definitely had the opposite experience of reading it and being really struck by the similarities, where you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, I think it's interesting to talk about the details that they changed, but the tone and the feeling of it, it was really, as I read it, I could imagine the movie playing out as I went through line by line. There's so much, yeah, there's so much faithfulness, uh, especially in the dialogue, um, which is the last thing that if I was making a film, I would take straight from the book, but they, like Bilbo's speech at his party is is like word for word, uh, they, they take it and they recreate it word for word in the movies. Um, so there's no doubt many more of these kinds of goodies to come. So if you've been listening and maybe even reading along with us, I really hope that you'll come back and join us uh, in a couple weeks for the next two chapters. Uh, there will be more business jargon from Navia, more uh, more fact checking of me from Ashani, more, more deep thoughts from me. Um, good things to come uh, for those who stick around. Uh, please tune in in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Wanda. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. Bear, da, 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 da.